All right, open your Bibles to um, Judges chapter 6, the book of Judges chapter 6. I think Dr. and Mrs. Young are home this evening late. Um, He'll be in the pulpit on Sunday, and uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, some um, praise reports to share about his trip. If if you receive grace online, you're aware of uh, at least one report regarding sharing the gospel with a Muslim. Anybody read that or see that? Um, I'm sure there'll be other stories to share as well. That was quite encouraging, quite quite stimulating to read. Judges chapter 6. We know something about the power of symbols in America, something about the, the corporate logos and those kinds of things. And millions of dollars and many years are spent in research and developing symbols that represent both the product and the philosophy of the company. Um, several weeks ago, uh, subbing again on Wednesday night, I'd mentioned the fact that some years ago, I heard someone say that there were three, um, three names, three words that were recognized universally, no matter where you were, almost without exception, Jesus Christ, Elvis Presley, and Coca-Cola. Uh, you can hardly go anywhere without seeing the golden arches. Uh, we're familiar with uh, uh, sports teams' logos, the Nike swoosh, and all those kinds of things. And today, the staff, uh, uh, a good portion of the staff, uh, took or went with, I should say, the, the, the ladies in the office, the secretaries, who are the real power at Gracie Van, who keep things, the machinery running in a smooth fashion. We all went to lunch today because today was, I think they called it Administrative Professionals Day. Was that the, the right title? And we were headed uh, north, south on Houston Levy toward uh, Poplar. And I noticed the flag at Landers. You know that enormous flag at Landers? It was at half-mast because of Virginia Tech. When we see that, of course, we see the flag. We go to sporting events. Um, No matter how long you've heard this, when you see the flag um, waving in the breeze and you hear the Star-Spangled Banner, at least for me, there's still something very emotive about that, something very emotive about going to a military funeral and hearing taps and uh, if you're at a very formal military funeral, hearing taps, the, the, the gun salute, and watching that flag being folded and presented to the, to the widow or the family members on behalf of the President of the United States, we thank you for your service to the country. Something very powerful about that. We know that. If you've been to a, a football game at UT and, and you watch the, the team run through the tee and you hear Rocky Top not once but umpteen times, over the course of a beautiful fall afternoon, something emotive about that if you're a UT fan. Something very distressing and alarming if you're not about that symbol. But we're all familiar with the power of symbols. And so the Scripture uses symbols as well, but it uses them for an entirely different reason. They don't become objects of devotion, objects of worship. We're not encouraged to bow down before them, but they become instruments of instruction. They point us to a way of life. They point us to a way of life living for Christ in a very ordinary, though fallen world. They call us to the discipline of surrender. They call us to to, uh, follow the Lord in the simpleness of faith and reliance and obedience and trust. Because the logic, listen, the logic to following Christ is not about making a name for ourselves. The logic of discipleship, growth, and spiritual maturity is really about surrendering our lives to the will of God. It's not about achieving selfish ends and self-ambition. It's really about surrendering ourselves to the Lord. And that's the foundational truth that shapes our lives in Christ. That's the way it all begins. The Holy Spirit so works in our lives to give us a heart to believe. And 
He liberates our, our will from its enslavement to the tyranny of sin. And He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we respond in faith to Christ as He's offered freely in the gospel. So there are symbols throughout the Scripture. We looked at some of the symbols. One of the symbols a few weeks ago, we looked at the symbol of manna. Uh, there's the symbol of the manger, how God incarnate comes not to a palace but to a feed trough. Uh, there's the, the symbol of the towel and the basin, that the way to greatness in the kingdom of God is through servanthood. And there are few examples more powerful in the context of the New Testament world and the context of the New Testament itself than, than a basin full of water and a servant's towel. And yet you look at Christ in John 13, and He takes not the crown, not the scepter, He takes the towel and kneels and washes the feet of His disciples including the son of perdition, Judas, who would shortly betray. Well, in Judges chapter 6 and 7, we're introduced to another symbol of surrender, and that's the symbol of Gideon's trumpet. You're probably familiar with the story of Gideon. You're familiar with the, the book of Judges. And just a couple of things to point out, however. I'm not going to read the whole story in its entirety. I just want to walk through it and point out a couple of things as we kind of um, meander around for the next hour and a half. I'm just seeing if you're with me so far, if you're listening, uh, for the next several minutes. How about that? Judges chapter 6 introduces us to this character called Gideon. Uh, it's, the story is set in a, in a historic context that's somewhat unfamiliar to us, perhaps. But the thing that leaps out at us as we, as we are introduced to the story of Gideon and the circumstances of Gideon's life and the Lord working in and through Gideon to accomplish a great victory. The first thing that leaps out at us, and the thing that I would point out first of all this evening, is that God works in seasons of correction and adversity just as much as He works in seasons of blessing and growth. God works in seasons of adversity and correction just as much as when He works in seasons of blessing and growth. It just feels differently. But He works no less in those seasons of adversity. Look how the chapter is introduced in verse 1, Judges 6, 1. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Now, the story of Judges follows this cycle of God's people's disobedience and the Lord allowing them, or not even allowing them, but actually uh, raising up adversity as a means of driving them to repentance and renewed faith. And in the opening verse here, notice, uh, this just couldn't be any plainer, I don't think. The Lord gave. There's an intention there. There's activity there. The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And notice verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it, so Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And yet, in that seven years of that cycle of adversity and of being brought low and of being oppressed and uh, the cycle of deprivation and so on, God was very much at work in the lives of His people. 
no less at work as when he sustained them in the wilderness, no less at work as when he brought them into the land of promise. God was still working in this season of dark providence and adversity. It just doesn't feel like the Lord is working in those times. You know, reading the book of Judges is like entering a foreign world. It's an ancient place. It took place somewhere around 1200 B.C., long time ago. And those Canaanite uh, tribal conflicts are crude and barbaric. We know very little of them. The whole book covers about 200 years from, from Joshua to the coronation of Saul. And honestly, when you read the book of Judges, it, it seems to have more in common with Braveheart than modern American life in the burbs. And yet the Lord is very actively present, accomplishing His plan, His purpose, and advancing His will. And in this harsh world of Darwinian survival, we meet a range of characters like this guy named Gideon. And we find that the Lord is working even in seasons of adversity. The powerful ruled the weak, the strong suppressed the feeble, and the Midianites would wait until Israel planted their crops. They would kind of retreat and lay low until it was the time of harvest, and then they would descend like locusts, reap the harvest, ravage the land, and chase Israel back into the dens and the caves from whence they came. And it all revolved around God's purpose in bringing correction to His people because they really they looked more like Canaanites than the recipients of God's covenant grace and faithfulness. They mirrored the context of the culture as opposed to mirroring, mirroring say that three times real fast, um, the character and the faithfulness of God. If you look at uh, verse 1 again, the, the, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That refrain is mentioned over and over. It's mentioned in chapter 2, and chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 10, chapter 13. In fact, listen, the book closes with this, this haunting refrain that sounds frighteningly familiar to American life today. The people did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And this is descriptive of the Lord's people. The Lord's people reflected the culture, reflected the context, and did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord sent correction and adversity as a means of bringing them back to Himself in faith and repentance. You know, I sometimes assume, and I assume that you assume the same thing, that if I'm in, quote, the Lord's will, if I'm in the Lord's will, and that's a broad term and... and uh, It'd be a digression to really, really get into it. But if I'm in the Lord's will, the center of God's will, His good, acceptable, perfect will, then there's going to be blessing and peace and joy and abundance and prosperity and plenty. In other words, life is going to be working smoothly. You can't really sustain that in the Scripture. Because if that were to be true, then when the Lord calls Abraham out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees, and leads him to the land of Canaan, Genesis 12. Genesis 12 says the Lord leads Abraham, or Abram at that time, into the land of Canaan, and there was a famine. That means suddenly now there's lack, there's deprivation, and the Canaanites are in the land, a barbaric, cruel, immoral, and ungodly people, and that's exactly where the Lord led Abram. And once he got there, he found incredible adversity. He left the comfort of his family and went to a place that was marked by darkness and depravity and deprivation. 
but he was right where the Lord wanted him to be. If we associate the will of God with feeling good about ourselves and pleasant circumstances of environment, then surely, then surely Joseph was out of the will of the Lord when he was betrayed by a false accusation of Potiphar's wife, placed in prison. Actually, we could go back, sold by his brothers at about age 17 into servitude in Egypt, falsely accused, placed in a, in a dark, dismal surrounding of prison uh, context. He would have been out of the Lord's will. And yet, Genesis 39, in Potiphar's house and in the pit in that prison, four times it says the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. If God's will is always associated with blessing and productivity and popularity and status and power, then surely after Samuel anointed David to be king and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, David was out of God's will for the next seven to ten years when he's running for his life from David. Surely Christ going in the Garden of Gethsemane and pleading with the Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Surely, if we base God's will on blessing, peace, abundance, prosperity, joy, all the things that cater to our flesh that I like, and I know you like them too. I love comfort, ease, and convenience. I love it. But you cannot equate circumstantial comfort, ease, prosperity, and blessing with the will of the Lord. And the point that I am belaboring to make in the opening verses of Gideon is just this simple principle that God works as much in seasons of correction and adversity as in seasons of blessing, success, and growth. God is always working to further accomplish His will. And in those circumstances, in those seasons of correction, of diminishment rather than growth and prosperity, the Lord is calling us to a life of grace and the discipline of surrender. Not a formula for success, but faithfulness in a season of brokenness. Not a formula for success, but He's calling us to faithfulness in a season of brokenness. Number two, what emerges out of the story with Gideon is that God works consistently in our lives on the basis of grace, not merit. He consistently works on the basis of grace, not merit. Now, that's true in salvation. We know that. We, uh, we just about all could quote uh, or paraphrase Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you're saved. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We understand it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saved us. But listen, that He saved us. But God always works on the basis of grace. We're not saved by grace and then grow in sanctification and holiness on the basis of merit and formula. It's always grace from start to finish. Always grace. There are three forms of legalism. Three forms. And all of us will tend to struggle with one or all of these. There, there's one form of legalism that kind of embraces the idea that we can do something to earn God's favor or merit salvation. We can earn God's favor or merit salvation. We've got a membership class on Sunday. We start about 345. We'll end at 6. And by the way, if, you're, if you've never been through the membership class, not too late to sign up. We'd love to have you. It's the real National Enquirer's version of Gracie Van. Opportunity to ask questions, to uh, hear all kinds of uh, nitty-gritty details, and, and if you've not signed up, we'd love to have you. But uh, I'll tell you, one of the one of the things that will be distributed is is the two evangelism explosion questions. And you know, one of them is if if uh, you stood before the Lord and He said, "Jeff, why should I let you into heaven?" How would you respond? 
You know, the predominant response, I'm not through uh, people that come through Gracie Van membership class. They're too well taught to respond this way. But you know what the predominant response is? To point to something you're doing or not doing, that's the predominant response. As I have posed that question in different contexts over the years, the predominant response is to point to something you're doing or something you're not doing. Like, I go to church, I've been baptized, I've been in church all my life, I teach a Sunday school class, I give, I serve, uh, I'm a member at such and such. None of that has to do with salvation. None of that has to do with a relationship with the Lord. Salvation is by grace, but everything that God does in our life is by grace. So the second observation that I'd make is that God works consistently on the basis of grace. One form of legalism says we can earn merit, God's favor and merit salvation. Another form of legalism, and maybe one we're more familiar with, focuses on submission to man-made rules. Submission to man-made rules. For example, let's say that um, this past Sunday I, I filled the pulpit in Dr. Young's absence and, and I showed up dressed like I'm dressed here. No coat, no tie. No service. <laughs> no coat, no tie. How would that strike you? What if I had on a short sleeve polo knit shirt? How would that strike you? And yet you would be hard-pressed. In fact, you could not find in the Scripture any basis to support Wearing a tie, a sport coat, or polo shirt, or knit pants, or 100% wool, or khakis. But we all have, do we not, all have some kind of code that we live by. And I understand that. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not suggesting that in Dr. Young's absence, I'm going to test, uh, test the parameters of my, my employment here. Uh, I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm saying we all have these little codes. You know what it was for me at 50 years of age? You know what it was for me in the 70s? It was the length of my hair in the context of the church in which I worshipped in. It was too long and made some of the generation above and the generation above them very uncomfortable because my hair was exceptionally long. Some of you have lived through those days. I'm saying that we all have these little codes. I have them, you have them. I just won't tell you what mine are, but I certainly have them. Maybe it has something to do with with uh, piercings and tattoos and all these. We all have them. We all have them. But God does not work on the basis of our man-made convictions. He simply doesn't. That's just another form of legalism that focuses on submission to man-made rules. Here's another form of legalism, and I call it Nike Christianity. It's just do it. it. It means pray more, read more, try more, give more. Uh, serve more, evangelize more. It's about more of what we can do. It's about more effort, uh, ramping up the performance, just kind of pulling ourselves up and getting in there and getting with it. That's just another form of legalism. Just another form of legalism. Because it's a performance orientation. And, uh, and admittedly, many of us, Fall prey to that kind of Christianity. The seven steps to this, the three steps to that. If you want to be a better father, here's the seven things you need to do. If you want to be a better wife, here's four or five things. And we make lists. And, uh, and often those lists get stuck in the Bible. And we leave worship service and we can't recall the list. But somehow or another, making those lists, it feels good. Admittedly, it does feel good. It feels good to the flesh. A lot of our seminars, books, CDs, DVDs, Revolve around Nike Christianity. It's about performance and more and more and more. 
And what I'm suggesting is that when you look at Gideon, you look elsewhere in the Scripture. God never comes and works in our lives on the basis of our performance or merit. In fact, He works in our lives in spite of our performance and in spite of not our merit but our demerits. That's true in the life of Gideon. When the Lord comes to Gideon, He doesn't come to Gideon because Gideon's anything special. In fact, the angel in a minute is going to appear to Gideon and uh, he's, going to find, he's going to call him a mighty man of valor. He's going to call him a brave and courageous man. But when he finds him, and like verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared and said to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Well, look where Gideon was in verse 11. In verse 11 it says, Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The wine press was uh, not above ground. It was often below ground. <laughs> he was hidden from view, in other words. He is hunkered down in a bunker, threshing wheat. And the Lord comes to him and calls him a valiant warrior. I'm telling you, there wasn't anything valiant about Gideon. He's hiding, threshing wheat. The Lord didn't come to him because he was full of courage. He didn't come to him because of his prowess with the sword. In fact, Gideon is going to say, why me? Um, I am the least in my father's house. And look at verse 15. How shall I deliver Israel? My family is, is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. In other words, I'm the least likely candidate. When the Lord sent Samuel down to anoint David, you remember what Samuel did? Samuel started where we would have started. He started with the oldest. And, and uh, in 1 Samuel 16, he starts with the oldest. And he says to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is a good-looking young man. And the Lord says, no, it's not him. And he goes right down through all the boys. And uh, none of them are it. And he turns to Jesse and says, you have any more sons? He said, yeah, I've got one, but he's the youngest. He's out tending sheep. And Samuel says, get him. I want him. That's the one that had the Holy Spirit come upon him the least likely candidate. And why is that? Because God is not drawn to human merit. He's not drawn to human performance. He is drawn to our weakness and our littleness and our insignificance because it's in that arena, in that environment, that the Lord magnifies His grace. God works on the basis of grace, not merit, because He responds to the cry of Israel. They're groaning. In verse 6, they were brought very low because of Midian. And uh, the first cause of that, of course, was the Lord uh, causing Midian to bring them low. So in verse 6, they cry out to the Lord. Verse 7, they cried to the Lord. And, uh, and God responded. God responded to their cry. Did they deserve intervention? Why, no, of course not. Have you ever heard this statement, they don't deserve mercy? You name me one person that deserves it. Name me one. Because if you deserve it, it's not mercy. If you deserve mercy... You're not getting mercy. Mercy is something you don't deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And God in grace does three things. He sends a prophet. In uh, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, sends a prophet to rebuke their sin and call them to repentance. This is the pattern of the Lord over and over. God confronts us with truth to bring us to repentance. And it's always an act of His grace that confronts us with truth. He raised up a Samuel. He raised up Elisha, Elijah. 
He raised up Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and Micah. And often the Lord's people don't want to hear the truth, but God in grace sends them a message of truth. God, secondly, in grace, acts by sending a deliverer. He provides the truth. He provides a means of deliverance. And the deliverer that he provided was Gideon, a man who is hunkered down in a wine uh, press, hiding for fear of the Midianites. That's the one the Lord chooses to use. And he doesn't, from our estimate, appear to be much. And every, I think, almost, you know, I'm cautious about saying this, but I think... Without exception, every Old Testament deliverer, every Old Testament prophet pointed forward to a coming fuller deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what the Scripture says of Christ? I mentioned this on Sunday. There's no physical description of of Christ. Have you ever wondered what He looked like honestly? Have you ever wondered what the Lord looked like? Did anybody see the Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson's Passion of Christ? You know, the guy that played Jesus, Jim... Caviezel, it looked pretty uh, pretty convincing, I think. You'd have to go back a few years, kind of black and white days. There was a guy by the name of uh, Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, my mom liked Jeffrey Hunter, and that's how I got the name uh, uh, Jeffrey. She saw this actor named Jeffrey Hunter, and she said, I don't know any Jeffs, so I'll call him Jeffrey uh, or Jeff. There was a guy by the name of Jeff Chandler, um, another actor. But you go back in history, and you know we've got these mental pictures of what Jesus looked like. There's nothing that really describes in the Scripture what the Savior looked like, except maybe this comes pretty close. Isaiah, 700 years prior to the Incarnation, says of Jesus that there was no form, there was nothing comely, handsome in His appearance, that we should be drawn to Him. Isaiah 53. There was nothing about His former appearance that we would be drawn to Him. You know how we Americans glory in appearance. And we want to think of him as being the perfect male specimen, just robust, charismatic, magnetic in appearance, piercing eyes, long flowing hair, no receding hairline, you know, everything perfect, curse-free, sin-free. And yet the Scripture says there was nothing about him that would reach out and grab you because the Lord doesn't glory in the things that we glory in. And he raises up this deliverer in Gideon, the third act of grace in this text is the Lord sends His Spirit, the power to accomplish His purposes, because God's purposes are never really accomplished in the power of our flesh. Look at uh, verse 34 real quick. Gideon 6.34, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's a repeated refrain over and over in the book of Judges, is that God's Spirit would come upon ordinary people and they would accomplish His purposes. God made Himself real. He made himself alive and present to Gideon. And by his grace and for his glory, not Gideon's, he turned him from being an inconsequential, cynical, fearful person into a man of conviction, courage, and um, responsibility. And Gideon's response to all of this is to be our response as well. In chapter 6, verse 24, Gideon worshipped. His response to the grace of God was that he worshipped. He worshipped. He responded in humility and submission and dependence. He built an altar. And there, in verse 24, he called the Lord his peace. His peace. The Lord is my peace. Or the Lord is peace, in verse 24. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon him and enabling him to do what was not humanly possible 
reminds us that it's not in the strength of our flesh. It's not in our techniques, methods, formulas, abilities, the things that we normally glory in and rely on. It's not by might, not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord through his prophet Zechariah. The Lord delights to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, to take the weak things to confound the mighty. That's what the preaching of the cross is about. You know, so much of evangelical, the evangelical world today, I think, wants to, to blunt and to make more acceptable the offense of the cross. There's something offensive about a crucified Savior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it was offensive to the Jews. They could not get over it. It was a stumbling block to them. That God's deliverer would die a cursed death on a crossed, a cursed tree in the form of a cross. They couldn't get over that. And for the Greeks, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, it's just utter foolishness. But God is pleased to take a stumbling block in the foolishness of the cross and to save those whom he brings to faith in himself. And why? For what end or what purpose? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that no flesh, not mine and not yours, would be able to glory in the presence of God. Our only glory, our only boast, would be in the Lord Himself. Third thing I'd point out, and with this we'll close from the text, is that God works to magnify His glory in our circumstances. There's so much for which we pray, and there's so much for which we really don't know how to pray. Um, Romans 8.26 says that. We don't know how to pray because of our infirmities, our asthenia, the weakness of our flesh. We don't have perfect knowledge. We don't have precise knowledge. We're not able to discern the depth of God's will. We don't know all that the Lord intends. So how do we pray then? Well, we can't honestly pray that God would work in this circumstance to magnify your glory, to make it larger and more luminous and a cause of rejoicing and a means of grace in our lives. God, make yourself glorious. That's what happens in chapter 6 and chapter 7. The heart of the story of Gideon is this radical battle plan. Look at chapter 7, verse 1 real quick, and I'm going to hasten to close. Um, Jerubbabel or Gideon, Jerubbabel, don't worry about that name, but it's the same guy. That is Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and uh, or Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north of them by the hill of uh, Moray in the valley. And the Lord says, and he's gathered about 32,000 here. And uh, the Lord says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hand, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own powers delivered me. 32,000, and so the Lord comes up with this radical battle plan. Uh, John Roberts and Billy Perry and I were talking about World War history before uh, we began tonight. Comes up the radical battle plan. 32,000 people. Um, Mike um, is from a, a Pacers from a military background. Radical battle plan here. Okay, all of you guys who are afraid and, uh, and, and you want to go home, you can go. And guess what? 22,000 of them walk away. 22,000 walk away. Keep in mind that Midian in Judges 6 is more numerous than the locusts. I mean, there are a lot of bodies out here. And 22,000 turn and walk away. Can you imagine being the commander of an army and 
He said, all right, all you guys that are scared, you want to go home? Just go ahead. We don't need you. 22,000 of them walk away. Then you've got 10,000 left against this multitude, too vast a number. And the Lord whispers and says, um, you still have too many. Uh, look at verse 3. Now, therefore, come proclaim the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid, trembling, let him go home. 22,000 left. Verse 4, the Lord says to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. And it shall be that he of whom I say, This one shall go with you, he'll go. And everyone of whom I say, This one shall not go, he'll not go. And you know the story. It was the water test. Some lapped like dogs, and some kneeled. And everybody that lapped like a dog got to stay and fight. And so he went from 32,000 down to 300. 29,700 left that day. And now the Lord says of that 300, these are the kind of odds I like. Because now there was no way this was humanly possible. Just not humanly possible. No way that Israel can now save themselves and win on their own strength. But I'm going to do what is not humanly possible. Here's the principle, guys. God manifests Himself, His strength, His grace, His goodness, His glory in our weakness. And He will even orchestrate the weakness to magnify His glory. He will even orchestrate the weakness to make large His glory before our eyes. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn of the flesh. Paul, my grace is sufficient. Think about the church in China in the 20s and 30s and 40s when the bamboo curtain was falling and, the, and missiologists and churchmen believed the church had ended in China. And when the bamboo curtain parted through Nixon and, and all the things that unfolded from that, they saw that the church was now 30 to 40 million people strong. They did not have techniques. They did not have tapes and DVDs and commentaries and dictionaries and word studies. They didn't have all those things that were at our fingertips. And yet God had multiplied supernaturally believers in China. It's the principle of, of the cross all over again. God takes the foolishness of men and reveals His glory. Well, just goes to show you the Lord's strategies are a lot different than ours, aren't they? We'd have been thinking about armaments, battle plans, strategies, and so on. The Lord says, send them all home. I'll do it with 300. And then you'll know, you'll know that it was I that did it, and you will worship me. His strategies are different than our own. The wisdom of men tells us to believe in ourselves. One of the five dominant lies that our culture preaches repeatedly today, in addition to life is random, we're all here by chance, truth is relative, it's your opinion versus mine. People are basically good. The goal of life is self-satisfaction, and you can be whatever you want to wish. You know what? I will never be a concert pianist. I will never be a brain surgeon. God did not gift me and wire me for that. But the Lord has a purpose and a pattern and a plan, and He calls us to the discipline of surrender through His grace. The world says, believe in yourself. And God says, turn from self-trust to trusting me. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Christ. The world promotes pride. God calls us to humility. Motivational speakers motivate us to dream big dreams and the Lord calls us to simple submission and prayerful dependence and obedience. And self-esteem, the oft-repeated mantra in the kingdom of God, the Lord says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. So, the Lord works just as much in seasons of hardship, adversity, and diminishment as seasons of success, prosperity, and blessing. 
The Lord often brings us into seasons of weakness to show His strength and His power. And God always magnifies, longs, and seeks to magnify Himself in our circumstances. So the Lord takes away a sword from Gideon and gives him a trumpet and says, put up the sword and why don't you blow this instead? And God gives a great victory. A simple symbol, a trumpet, not a sword. A simple symbol that calls us tonight to the discipline of surrender and faithful dependence upon the Lord. It's the Lord's action in the story. He intervened. He took the initiative. He poured out His Spirit. He gave a great victory. Gideon's in the story too, but not with a sword, with simple dependence upon a jar of clay and a trumpet. And God is honored by that. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness in our lives tonight. And thank You that You work in us to accomplish Your good pleasure. Um, may we find comfort and encouragement in that great truth that you're working us to will and to do of all of your good pleasure. We know that the ultimate end of that is to make us more like Jesus. And um, for that we pray in his name. Amen.